obviously there are, you know, millions of lives that we're talking about and, and, you know, billions of dollars. And so it's not that easy to just like up, have a huge upheaval, but sometimes that's what I think you need. Like, like to say, like, actually, when you just kind of restart, things look different. I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. This summer, we're speaking with local leaders about what they're doing to make Boston a stronger, healthier, and more livable city. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Robin Reisberg, founder of Boston Community Pediatrics, which is piloting a new and innovative model for comprehensive medical care for our city's most vulnerable children. I talked with Robin about why she started this practice and what opportunities this model presents for the future of pediatric care in our state and our country. Robin, good afternoon. Nice to see you. Great to see you. All right. Let's chat about what you're doing. We met several years ago now. Gosh, we met such a long time ago. You were uh, running South End Community Health Center? I was the head of pediatrics there. Yes. And that's when we first met. And you had started the health center that was attached to the Blackstone. So this is a long time ago. So Let's start there because what you're doing today is different than that, but inspired by everything that you did and learned up until you broke away and founded Boston Community Pediatrics. And so I want to just go back for a little bit to talk about what was working in these more traditional environments in which you were running things and and working as a pediatrician. And maybe talk too about the differences between the community center and the school-based health center. Yeah, so that was an incredible experience. I had become the head of pediatrics at the South End Health Center when my former boss, Jack Maypole, left. And I actually didn't even want to be the head of it. So he left and said, like, you're it. You you basically drew the short <laughs> stick. And I said, well, I'm just going to be interim. I'm definitely not going to do this. And then they kept bringing me candidates that either didn't have a vision or didn't have a ton of experience in working with underserved populations. And I thought, oh gosh, this is not going to go well. And so finally, the executive director at that time, which was the second executive director, Bob Johnson said, okay, enough already. Like you you can't reject any more candidates if you're not going to do this. And by that time, I'd been doing it for like a year and a half and I loved it. I had realized that it was really exciting and empowering to be able to build programs and make things work and help build up staff and help create an environment that everyone wanted to be a part of. And so I said, okay, I'll do it, but you have to pay me more because he hadn't been paying me to do it either. So, and then um, it was right around that time that the school-based health center was going to open and that we had this opportunity. And it was so exciting because we knew we were building this new health center and it was going to take a while, but, and we knew that we were planning to have it be attached to the elementary school and part of the school-based health center. And so we said, well, how, how are we going to do this right to make it really work well? There actually have been numerous school-based health centers in elementary schools that actually didn't work that well. And they had a lot of issues. And a lot of it was around turf and space because oftentimes they were kind of plopping someone in and there was Mm -hmm. no space for the nurse practitioner who was coming. We said the best way to make it work well is if we go and meet with the school and make sure that we know what the school wants, make sure we know what the school needs, 
and then we can kind of build it together. And so we did that. And, and because we were building it, we had a lot of time. I think it was probably every week or every two weeks we met with the school and the team that I was bringing in, we met with the school nurse quite a bit. Not only sort of was the person who ran it, but I also worked there. I I said, I'm only going to run this if I can work here, because I think if you're not there living it, it's really hard to say what something needs and and understand all the ins and outs. I want to ask you one question before we talk about how it led to the center that you've opened, the community pediatrics, when you were talking about not necessarily wanting to run it and interviewing all of these other folks to run it, one of the things you said that was critical was someone who understood the community and someone who who had experience serving kids in high needs communities. Why, Why is that so important? Why, what's the difference between kind of serving middle-class kids and underserved kids? you have to understand where a family is coming from. And and obviously every family comes from a different place, but you have to know where those places are mentally, physically, all the barriers that they're up against. I think I have seen a lot of people feel annoyed when people don't show up for appointments, no shows. How do we get the no show rate down? And, you know, but let's think about what's the root cause of why they're not coming because you made them have an appointment at 2 PM, the time that they one are working to have to pick up three other kids in three different places at three different Boston public schools. Yeah. They're definitely not coming, but they don't (laughs) want to tell you that because they feel like you gave them this appointment and they are trying to be respectful. And so if you don't push, I can't tell you how many times that's happened. I've said, well, is that a good time for you? Are you going to be able to make that? And people say, no. But you give them the space to be honest. Right. So, so if you, but if you don't even know to ask those questions, and I think also working with families for so long and understanding so many different facets of their lives and their uniqueness and the unique place that the South End Community Health Center is and and was created for, if you don't have any perspective of that, I'm just not sure that you can just kind of plop someone down. I think one of the people that I interviewed was someone who had worked with like upper middle class families in New Hampshire, and he was ready for a career change. And and of course that would be wonderful, but had, you know, then you might tell people to like, just let's, let's see patients faster. Let's, why do you need all these other services? And oh, why do you, why do you need a wellness person? And why do you need a community health worker? And why do you need a case manager? And what does integrated mental health look like? If, if you don't have any perspective of that, I'm just not sure you'd be the right person for the job. Right. Right. Your, all of your work, your entire career has been in underserved communities. Is that right? Yes. So talk a little bit about what inspired you to become a pediatrician. I have a, such a unique background in that I had no idea I wanted to go to med school. In fact, I was actually terrified of blood (laughs) Um, and I thought I was going to be a sports psychologist and I was a psychology undergrad and I went to the university of Michigan. And after I went on a program in college called semester at sea, where I traveled all around the world and I was fascinated with India. And so I just wanted to go back to India after I graduated. And so I graduated, I moved home outside Boston and worked two jobs and saved my money to travel around the world. And 
actually all of my friends from college parents said, you better stay away from her because she's going to travel and does not have a job and does not have anything good happening in her life. I think one mother said to her daughter, like, don't get any ideas from her. That sounds terrible. Oh my Um, gosh. I did go back to India and Southeast Asia and Nepal and Thailand and spent a lot of time there. And actually, while I was there in Delhi one day, I was sitting in a park and just looking at all of the poverty and thinking, being a sports psychologist is really not going to do much for this world, right? <laughs> like, I mean, it will help some people, but if I were a doctor, yeah. I mean, I could come here maybe and help people. And then I thought, well, I mean, you didn't never took a science class. You really probably aren't good at sciences. And so you should just put that in your mind. So I put it away. And then I came back and I started working at Planned Parenthood in New York City. I was the assistant to the director of development. And then I started volunteering in their clinics Mm -hmm. and realized, oh my God, this is awesome. And so I woke up one day and said, I think I'm going to go to med school. I'm just going to do it. Like I've been mulling about it. And so I came home and announced to my family, it was my parents were having an anniversary party. And I said, hi, I'm going to med school. And they were like, (laughs) okay, you better like get on that because you can't just like show up at med school. So I went to Bryn Mawr College. They have a post-bac program, a year long down and dirty. You do everything in a year. They're one of the only programs in the country that you can have no pre-med requirements done and do it all in one calendar year. So I did that and knew even when I was deciding to start even that process that I wanted to work with low-income families from different backgrounds. And so thought I'm going to need to learn Spanish and I'm going to, you know, there were all these things that I knew I was going to need to do. So I then applied to med school, went to UMass med school and actually went to Ecuador right before med school to start my learning Spanish. And while I was even leaving to go to Ecuador, I thought, you're crazy. You're about to start med school and you're going on this trip by yourself to learn Spanish. Like, you know, but best way to learn. Yeah. The only way for me to learn, because I never took Spanish in high school. I like showed up in Ecuador and lived with a family and I was like, hola, (laughs) (laughs) I learned a lot of Spanish. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, That's how I learned Japanese. I moved to Japan. Yeah. And then did my residency and basically left residency, graduated. I had had just had my first daughter. I ended residency on bed rest and had started doing this fellowship, which was clinical work as well as research and realized by November that I was never going to be able to get my master's in public health. I'd already missed the summer classes because I was on maternity leave. So get my master's in public health, do research and clinical work and actually know who my daughter was. So I left that and decided to go work at a health center. And that was a little bit, it was at Boston Medical Center that I was doing that fellowship. Yeah. And it was, I, I fulfilled all my clinical requirements, but I'm not sure that anyone had ever left a fellowship. And they, yeah. they were like, well, how are we going to, what do we do? And and I'm not sure you can do this. I'm like, I'm pretty sure I can. Yeah. And I will fulfill all my requirements because it was like a nationally funded fellowship. Yep. Uh, and I said, you know, I'm a pediatrician and I want to spend a little time with my kid. I like... <laughs> I think that I, I hear that's important. Yeah. So I started looking around at different health centers and the South End Health Center during residency had had this mystique to me because 
Gerald Haas, who was one of the founders and Mm -hmm. is now a very close friend and mentor of mine, had started it. And and someone described him to me as someone who, uh, he's like Robin Hood. He took money from his wealthier patients and started the South End Health Center. Mm. Um, And it's true. He had a private practice in Cambridge and and he left that to start it. People just said he he always calls about his patients and he's amazing. And I had once spoken to him on the phone about a patient and I thought, oh, I'm speaking to, I was nervous to call him, right? Like, oh, I have to call that guy, Dr. Hass, who's like really awesome. Yeah, the guru. So then I went there and they had a job for me and it was great. I got to work with Dr. Haas and he always said like, we treat everyone like family here. We treat our patients like family. We treat our staff like family. And that just makes the world go around. And I loved that philosophy and mentality. And we were like one big family. And so I was there for a long time. And then you decided to help start the school-based health center at Blackstone. Yeah. Yeah. So and and you loved it and it was you were sort of fulfilling this vision that you had back in India. So I mean there's a whole piece of this that we could talk about about how you just kind of manifested that and what kind of inspiration that should provide to kids who are sitting and thinking and being told that they need to know right now yes. what they should be doing. That's what I um, always tell people when I'm people, yeah. you know, my my daughter's a junior in high school and everyone says, What does she want to do? And I said, She has no idea, but yeah, who cares? And it's terrific. Yeah. Right. So you're practicing now in an environment that yeah. you want to practice in with kids, with families, in in a place that said we treat everyone like family, which is such a beautiful thing and not typical, probably. What did you learn about what worked? And what did you notice were some kind of not so well-oiled wheels that you felt like, man, these are, these are things that if we could fix, it would make practicing medicine in this population even better. Yeah. So I think the one thing that always stands out to me is that this idea that in order to keep institutions and health centers running, you have to see patients and that's obvious, but this constant kind of push to see more patients quickly. And there was always a question, do you see patients every 15 minutes? Do you see patients every 20 minutes? Should well child visits be 30 minutes or only 20 minutes? And I was always advocating for the long time, the longer amount of time. And I always ran behind. It was like a joke. I mean, patients would call and say, well, can I be late? Cause she's going to be late where before <laughs> she's going to be late. And you know, the front desk would staff would say, no, you can't be late. Cause if you're more than 15 minutes late, we won't see you. And they said, but you know, and then they would feel annoyed because then they would yeah. wait for me for an hour and a half. And I felt bad, but I didn't have control over my schedule and I didn't have control over how many patients I could see per hour. And that was actually something that I really was always pushing back on. People would say, well, you have to see more patients. We, we have to, it it was every kind of senior management meeting. And I think probably to this day is see more patients, see them faster, get more patients in and out the door. And so you start to feel like this, like cog in a wheel, right. Or like, you know, you're like running, 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 running. And then like, for what, because actually the amount of money you're making per patient, like per patient visit is not that much. And that's the problem. And that's why there's this push to see more patients, you know, but I did, I had some successes. I think I took me five years to advocate, to get a case manager in our department. And I finally Mm -hmm. got one. And that was really exciting. And the integrated mental health work that we were doing was really exciting. And the people who worked there were amazing. And everyone really was 
so invested in the patient. Wait, but, let me stop you for a second. So, yeah. so on the, the visits per hour thing, you know, kind of, this is just traditional sick care where the folks who are looking at the, only the numbers and not the patients are always pushing the doctors to just push them through, push them through, push them through as yeah. if they're like cogs on a line and doctors looking at patients from the perspective of care and health and wellness know that every individual is an individual. It takes a certain amount of time. It's not something that can be well modeled on a spreadsheet, but as you were doing that, and as you were kind of constantly meeting this friction, you sort of started to fill in the gaps. So you just mentioned hiring a case manager. Why was hiring a case manager important to the overall model in terms of providing some balance to what you were doing, but also providing another piece of the care that your patients needed? Well, because before that, if someone brought up the fact that they were having housing instability or they were food insecure or they needed help with childcare, I was like in the visits trying to solve all that, right? Sure. So now my visit that was supposed to be 15 or 20 minutes and already was 30 or 40 minutes because I was just providing medical care was now becoming an hour because all of a sudden now I'm searching for a food pantry, or I'm trying to figure out why they're not getting the right amount of food stamps, or I'm Mm -hmm. trying to call the school that they're in to find out why their child is actually not being pulled out for special education services, even though they have an IEP that they've brought me that shows that they should be. All of those things all of the social determinants of health that everyone now is really talking about, it was either you had to do it or it didn't get done. So, so unfortunately, fortunate for your patients, unfortunately for the guys who are modeling your practice or women, the buck kind of stopped with you. And, and you were like, look, all of these things actually affect the, my patient's ability to be healthy and well, where he or she sleeps at night, how much food, the type of food that's put into their body, whether or not they are getting the right type of environment and teaching at school. You referenced an IEP, so an individualized learning plan. So you basically said, I'm going to put on the brakes. I'm going to make sure all of these things are taken care of. Then you were able to lobby for getting a case manager. That person's now on your team. And so you can continue to see the patient through the eyes of the doctor, but then make referrals to this case manager who could solve these other things that were just as important to their health. Maybe sometimes the most important thing too. Yeah. I would guess. Uh Yeah. 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 I mean, for sure the most important thing and certainly the most important thing to that patient, of course they needed to get their physical and we needed to address maybe, you know, their asthma or if they were overweight or their ADHD. And those are all really important, but at, at any moment for, and for, for people, something becomes more important, right? Like having a housing crisis, that's going to rise to the surface. And whether or not you're getting the ADHD medication, which is critically still important to this kid is, is in your mind, less important because you have a housing crisis. So yeah, so we had this case manager and all of a sudden we had extra support. So that was great, but it was, it sort of like, it wasn't enough, right? So now you have one person trying to help because sometimes it's hours you're staying with the patient. And I was never probably staying you know, multiple hours, but I would at least start the process and then bring them back. Same with mental health. We developed an integrated mental health program, which was awesome. And so someone in crisis in that moment, I could walk down the hall and bring Mm. a mental health clinician in. And that was huge. And that was working really well. And patients were getting the support that they needed. 
at some point though, you said, okay, all of this is fantastic. And I've learned a lot. This model is working well attached to the school. South End Health Center has taught me quite a bit. And I think there's something more. I want to go show the world that if we care for kids and families in a particular way, it's actually going to be the optimal way. And I'm hoping to create something that is replicable. So talk a little bit about what you evolved your center yeah. into at your pediatric practice and, and why you think it is working even better than the things that you helped create. So in the back of my mind, I was always thinking like, how can we do this better? How can we do that better? Right. When you're in charge of something at, when I was at South End and, and, and a new medical director came in a couple of years before I left and he said, give me your vision of the pediatrics department. And so I said, okay. And instead of, I think he thought I was going to like go home that night and like write up like a little email for him. That was like a page mm-hmm. long or something. And instead I spent two months on it. I would like kept going back to it at night. I would come home at night and go back to it. And, and every couple of days go back to it. And it ended up being, I think it was like seven pages, single space, maybe 11 point font. And it had everything I could ever want. And I, and what I realized is that was the boilerplate for Boston community pediatrics. I, I like put like my heart and soul in that and, and thought like, what would, what's my utopia for pediatrics in the patient population that I'm working with? And I presented it to him and he, I mean, he was like, I mean, okay. He didn't even know what to do with it. Even though as you implemented it, it it works within a business model that's successful. So, so talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So, and then I finally just said, uh, in order, if I really want to do like, this feels like this is awesome. And how do we do this? And I thought it's it's just not going to be able to be implemented here because you kind of have to just start fresh. And so, you know, slowly I started thinking about, well, what are the different, what really works well in pediatrics right now? So there's hospitals, there's health centers, and then there's private practices. I was talking to people all over the country. So when I wasn't working and wasn't with my family, I was definitely on the phone with someone talking about models of care and what right. works. It took a long time. It was a couple of years that I was like in formation of thinking about this. And I realized, well, the in, in Massachusetts, at least, pediatric private practices work pretty well. They're small. Someone answers the phone. That was the other thing I haven't even talked about. The phones were so always drove me crazy. In fact, half of my patients have my cell phone because I felt so bad that they would be waiting on hold to get an appointment for an hour. And then only to be told that like, no one could see them or talk to them. It was like, for some Uh. reason, the phones to me, like, symbolize it all right because mm-hmm. I hate waiting on the phone like with that music playing and mm-hmm. then you finally get someone and they say like oh press one if you would like this press two if you would like this and then you get sent to someone's voicemail and then you have to zero out and that to me kind of sums up our bureaucratic health system and then and then you do get us something on the phone and they seem really annoyed to talk to you and yeah, yeah. and can't yeah. help you like oh right. the schedule's not open that day yeah, well, right. mean, we're not scheduling that week. What, I, yeah. what do you mean? Or, or I'm sorry, your you know provider. This would happen with my patients all the time. She's full. She can't see you. And I would always say, oh, but it was, you know, if they asked me, I would always say you can overbook them. But they're like, yeah. well, okay. You're like, but- look, 
I, I'm I'm here till midnight anyway. Exactly. exactly. I might as well see patients for most of the time. Exactly. Like right. I'm not I'm going nowhere fast. Right. Um and they, they were always like, Yeah, but we want to leave. And if there's still patients here, we can't leave, you know. But, yeah, exactly. But so anyway. you gave you gave people lots of patients your cell phone, which yeah. by the way is like gold. I think I have one doctor who does that too because he understands what it's like the front desk experience. And so he, I think he has a lot of his patients just call him directly. And it's like a prize that you could never imagine winning to have direct access to your yeah. doctor. But it feels like it shouldn't be such a prize. So anyways, going back to the small pediatric private practices, most people answer the phone there and, and usually you can get what you need by the person who answers the phone. And I thought, well, right. that is a huge component. And I, and I realized that that is actually saying that works. What doesn't work is the payment model if all your patients have mass health or the majority of your patients have mass health. Why not? Because mass health pays about 50% of what private insurance pays for the exact same visit. So for instance, if you see two, even to this day now, when I see, I might see someone who has mass health in one room, and then I go mm-hmm. to the next room and spend mm-hmm. the exact same amount of time with them, mm-hmm. have exact, very similar visit. And they have Blue Cross. I get paid mm-hmm. about twice as much. Mm-hmm. And do it's me. I do mm-hmm. nothing different. Same location. Mm-hmm. It's just the mm-hmm. way our payment system works. Yeah, it really bothers me that for some reason government doesn't value one person the same way that it values another person. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. pretty spectacular, especially given that you know that somehow the value that's created by you in one room is perceived as different. Mm-hmm. than the value created in, in another room for something that is unbelievably important to the, not only the health and wellness of our community, but quite honestly, the health and wellness of our democracy when it comes to thinking about what mental health is doing right yeah. now to our country. So you saw you saw that happening pretty spectacularly because primarily you were seeing patients who were in underserved situations and covered by mass health. But I did have some patients who had private insurance. I think because I gave out my cell phone, people heard about me and they said, oh, I want the woman who gives out her cell phone. You know, so I thought about all different models. Could I do a concierge model? Could I do where some people paid more? Everyone paid something. Some people paid more like a sliding fee scale payment. Yeah. And then I just realized I don't want certain people. Everyone just comes, gives their insurance, gets the same exact care. And that's the way it works. And, it, you know, it was again, months talking to people. But I, before that, before I made that decision, I had this, so I had this idea that it was first going to be a for-profit organization. And I went to pitch it to a friend of mine who's the donor and he like hated it. He like completely shot it down. It was Matt Sidman. He said, so you're asking me to invest my money in your business that's for-profit and you're going to keep making more money and everyone's making, he's like, "Eh, it's not such a good uh, return on my investment. And Mm -hmm. there was nothing. And I'm, and I said, but it's like for the greater good. Yeah. So I, so I like went home that day and, and everyone was like, how'd it go? And I'm like, he hated it. (laughs) (laughs) And they said, he hated it. He hated it from a for-profit perspective. Exactly. From a business perspective. I don't understand like the return on this. Yeah. And so he didn't hate, of course, the idea, but so people said, are you so disappointed? And is this terrible? I said, no, I'm so glad. I only went to one person and had to have him tell me it wasn't going to work. You know, I, and so nice so, when friends are honest with you, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. 
And I said, so now I just, I got to figure it out. Like I got to figure out what the way to do this is that that probably isn't the way. And so ultimately came up with this nonprofit pediatric private practice, which is, so I had all that private practice, good stuff in it. And the, the only issue is I needed philanthropy to support it. Okay. Let's talk about that for a second though. So your practice does, you see patients who are on private insurance, you see patients who are on mass health, the the majority of your patients are on mass health. There's a balance to some degree that's created by having patients who are paying you more because of the insurance that they're on. And then right now it's subsidized by philanthropy. Just for a minute, let's remember all of the other things that happen in healthcare that mass health is paying for that don't necessarily have to happen if more practices operated like yours. For example, it's something like 86% of low-income families are more likely to go direct to the ER when there's an issue as compared to private patients on private insurance. So that's going to be very expensive when your yeah. like doctor visit is the ER versus your office. Just can you talk a little bit about that? Cause like how much of that, if we, if we had practices around the city who are modeled like yours, how much of that 86% could we chip away at? Yeah, a lot, I think. And actually we're looking at this this summer. We have some interns looking at our ER visits and trying to think about comparing them because I, it, it's true. ER visits, unnecessary hospitalizations, potentially specialist visits that may or may not need to happen. A lot still would, but the ER visits, and and that was always what I held on to. Like if, for instance, I could save a group of patients, you know, a million dollars in ER visits or $2 million, including hospitalizations could Matt would mass health. Could I ask mass health to pay me half of that? So they're still making half. So, and I'm still working on that. And we've been able to actually advocate with MassHealth. So we're part of a MassHealth plan called the PCC plan, and it's a non-ACO plan. And all of a sudden, this plan has more pediatric patients than they've had in a long time, maybe ever. Mm -hmm. I don't know. We became interesting to them quickly, which was good. I like to be interesting to people. So why are you interesting? Because it's working. Yes, because it's working. and, And where are these patients coming from? And how are they getting their care? And what's going on? So I got to talk with MassHealth and they said, we will pay for some of the care case management services that we had talked about. They call it care navigation, but it's, it's yeah. working with families around the social determinants of health. We'll pay for their care through this other organization. And I said, mm-hmm. the way our model works is we all work really closely together. So our care navigators are coming into our visits with us and vice versa. Right. There's health- no, there's no weight in talk to someone else later. Everything yeah. happens in your office right at now. the same time. Exactly. Yeah. And it happens together. So if they need my help, if, if they're like, hmm, how would we do this? Or what kind of letter would I need to help this organization, you know, this agency help this family? I'll say, oh, okay, I'll do it right now. Right. I said, so how about you pay me instead? Not me personally. How about you pay yeah. Boston Community Pediatrics to do the work? Yeah. And they said, okay, we tried that once before and it didn't really work. And I said, I, I bet I'm going to make it work. So we are getting paid for some of our case management service, which is awesome. I mean, it's not enough. And, and actually they said, oh, well, they ha- part of the criteria for being a part of this specific program is someone has to have a discrete medical problem. Mm. So if you have a newborn who's homeless 
And also their family is experiencing food insecurity. That newborn has no medical problem necessarily, right? In that moment, probably will at some point if all of these things continue. And so they said to only send us cases of people who have a medical diagnosis. And I said to our director of wellness and care navigation, let's send them everything. Yeah. So she said, okay, they're going to reject them. I said, okay. And so we did. And and then just a few months ago, they said, okay, we don't, we can't take, we can't review all these. And we feel bad that we're constantly telling you, no, how about we do a pilot? So we, anyone who's having housing insecurity, they don't have to have a medical diagnosis and we'll still pay you as if Mm -hmm. the same way. And it's going to be just a pilot Mm -hmm. just to see how it goes. And I said, great. So now we can send them anyone with housing insecurity and they will pay and and they can be part of this program. You know, can I just stop you for a second and just say it it would be great if more folks had, I guess, the capacity to be creative and to take risks like you are, because it really is what does make government move and make the system change. I think there's not, you know, there's government moves slowly to protect us. It's, you know, they're, they're not out to be bad guys. And, but the onus is really on us to, you know, bring creative ideas to the table and, and to be a part of demonstrating how they're successful. And and so I, I think it's really important what you're doing and that you're always engaging them because obviously the bulk of your revenue is is going to come from that resource. And so it's really kind of about, it's the same work that we do, but showing showing government new and innovative ways to use to say money that have more impact, which there's not really a person in charge of those dollars who doesn't want to see that happen. Right, right. Uh, so one of the other things I wanted to ask you about, I spoke to Nubar Afayan, who is the chairman of Moderna. Yeah. And I asked him if he was king for a day, what would he do to change anything? You know, we were talking primarily about healthcare. And he said, if I could make any major change, it would be that I would shift the entire healthcare model in this country from sick care to preventative care. And it really is what your practice is aiming to do is to perceive and see into the future the impacts of what's happening in a family that you're serving today. And so can you talk a little bit about how you do that and maybe talk specifically, you and I caught up not too long ago, about a month ago, and in, in all over the news, there's all of this information about how adolescents are being broken by mental illness. And I asked you how that was going in your practice. And you surprisingly said to me, no, it's okay. And I I said, how can that be true? And so can you talk a little bit about preventative care and why you were able to say that? Yeah, like it's, I'm not seeing it in my practice. Talk about why that's true. I think it was just, it blew my mind. And I think it was the most amazing part of our conversation. Well, so I am seeing a lot of mental illness, just to be clear. I'm just, we just have a way of helping to care for kids that have mental illness that seems to be working. And so I'll talk about that. It feels like in medicine, and I totally agree with that comment, that everything comes from the top down, right? So you start here and there's administrators up here and everything filters down. And by the time all of the money and programs filter down, the patient's at the bottom. Yeah. And I, to me, that's the problem with how we are looking at healthcare. You have to put the patient in the center and you have to real, and that's what we do here. We put the patient in the center and everything comes out of that. 
and everyone's not the same either. Everyone's always trying to put people in these categories, right? And I'm not saying that you you can't categorize things, but every person and every person's experience and needs are just different. And if you just kind of look at what is in front of you and who is in front of you, you can really solve a lot of problems. Like we'll have people show up with little kids without a car seat and they've come from, they've been in the car and we'll say, well, we are, we might be Ubering them home because they have multiple kids and we're giving them a bunch of things that they need to get home and they can't take the bus at this point. And so someone will say, what should we do? And I'll say, I don't know, go buy a car seat. Like some, you know, someone, so we literally, someone runs to target and buys the car seat. And if you had that mentality, you could solve almost any problem. But when you put that into an institution, you know, it'd be like, oh, well, the car seat program is on Thursday mornings, every other Thursday at 10 a.m. So they'll have to come back in two weeks at 10 a.m. We'll have to get them on the list for the car seat program. Or, you know, it wouldn't be like, oh, go buy the car seat. It would be like, how do we work within the system to find where the car seat is? Yeah. And the car seat would show up in two years when the child was. Exactly. Exactly. You know, kind of like childcare vouchers. They show up when Mm -hmm. the kid goes to kindergarten. And, and the people, and I think people are so entrenched in kind of the ways that like the way we do things. I had a physician at Mass General, a pediatrician look at me after telling him what I was doing. And he said, I never thought about going outside the system. Like, I can't believe what you've done. Yeah. And I said, well, it's kind well, of ingrained in you, right? When you're trained by yes. one of these amazing medical institutions, yes. there is, is a practice for a reason, right? Yes. Like we call it a practice because you just do it over yeah. and over and over again. Yeah. And my answer was, well, I tried, I mean, I, I tried my very best to work within the system and I yeah. was, I, I couldn't bang my head against the wall anymore. Like I couldn't accomplish fast enough five years to get a care navigator. Like just like, that's pretty slow progress. I mean, yeah. it was great, but that was, that's not how I work. Like I'm pretty right. like, let's do it. And so I said, so I, I kind of had no other choice. Like I wasn't sure where else to go. So I just went here, but I think that's true. I think people are so ingrained. It's so different than the business community, right? The business community, it's like, how do we get the most innovative place? Let's get 10 different people doing 10 different things to try and the race to the, you know, to the best one. And then, well, and also, but the business community is tied to profit, right? Revenue and profit. But, but the point here is that so are you, right? right? The thing is, is that if the system moved more quickly to align with the ideas that you're bringing to light, we would shed costs, right? So this is not about, this is really just about shifting costs, actualizing better care, focusing more on health and wellness in the immediate, right? Because these these kids, that's the crazy thing about pediatrics too, I'm sure, is that they're only children for a short period of time, right? And so you're like always rebuilding advocacy around this particular sector of of healthcare, but it's the most critical. Yeah, everyone knows investments in kids is the greatest investment you can make, yet kids in the healthcare system are cheap compared to adults. And so so they actually end up, people don't care that much about them. But what people don't think about to me is that they're part of a larger family structure, right? Right. And so you have an opportunity to do so much work if you, and and everyone, and people bring their kids to appointments because people are invested in their children. Like that is like everyone's, you know, most precious part of their life is their kid. And, And we see this across everyone. You know, I always say that's how you can engage with people, right? 
because you're putting the child, it's not about their own health or it's not about what they haven't done. It's all about how do we support your child? Let's support everything around it. So you have kids and families at the center of your practice. You, you surround them with uh, providers in addition to yourself who uh, understands medicine w- to make sure that you can take care of every need that su- in some way affects their, their mental and physical, emotional, social health and wellness. What do you want to do next? What's next on the horizon for you and for, for your practice? We're still tweaking. I mean, I think we've nailed it and we're tweaking, right? Like, so I, um, I'm a bit of a perfectionist, as many people know who work with me, who live with me, my poor family, (laughs) but we want, you know, I wanted to, I want to figure out exactly what, how many, you know, how many mental health clinicians, how many pediatric providers that we need for this number of patients right now we have probably close to 1100 patients. We're expanding. We're taking over the floor below us because we have run out of room. So I want to kind of perfect this location, understand how we think about scaling it. And then Mm -hmm. where do we go? There's so many facets to this. I mean, staff retention, staff satisfaction, our staff is happy. They like coming to work. They work as a team. Our providers are happy. People aren't feeling burnt out. I mean, Mm -hmm. people are tired and And it's been hard working in the pandemic, of course, every few months, there's something new, like we just rolled out COVID vaccines for, you know, kids six months and older, which is great. But every, every few months, it seems like since we've opened, there's been new things that we're doing and tweaking and changing. And so I feel like I need to at least have six to 12 months of working at a time where there's maybe not a major epidemic, pandemic, knock on, knock on wood. I don't know. I don't know if that's going (laughs) to happen. So if it doesn't, it doesn't, but, and even our mental health work, which I know you asked about. So, so we're going into visits with our mental health clinicians. We're bringing our mental health clinicians into visits with us. And it really has, I think, changed the way that people think about mental health. Our patients are much more open to having a mental health clinician, work with them because they know their providers coming in. Mm. Sometimes I'll do the whole visit with the mental health clinician for the first visit so that they Mm -hmm. really understand how connected we are. But if you have a child with ADHD who's on medication and they are going to see a therapist and then separately, they have to go see a doctor, pediatrician, psychiatrist, or someone else to tweak their medication. The parents are almost doing like double duty because they talk to the therapist and that may be, they may talk about medication and how it's going, but then that same person can't even fix the medication. Right. But we do all that together. So a child with ADHD just comes in for one visit. I hear how things are going. The mental health clinician and I do the work together. I'm talking about how we're changing it together. So she can remind them. She can talk about it, how to go. Oh, I forgot to make the change. Okay, well, let's talk about that. We're, Dr. Eisberg's going to come in in a few minutes and we can talk about why that happened. And also people don't have to repeat their story. So many times people are telling their same story to this person and that person. And especially if there's any trauma involved, that's not only exhausting, it's sort of paralyzing for people. Triggering, yeah, absolutely. I, I do think it's a drive just sitting here listening to you because I know so many parents, right, who, you know, and these are private paying parents, but they're running from one appointment to the next and, and having the experience that you're having without all of the other side effects that your patients are sometimes dealing with. And so 
streamlining the visits is really what you're talking about and trying to make sure that as much care that can be provided at a single point is high value for, for the patient. Well, I want to ask you a question. If you, if you're a queen for the, for a day, or if you just, if you're just you and you had 15 minutes with Mary Lou Sutters, who runs health and human services for the state and the mass healthcare falls under her purview, what's the thing you would ask her to just consider? I think really reimbursing for all the social terms of health and reimbursing medical care and preventative care, actually, Mm -hmm. in a way that practices were able to do the work. So reimbursing it at a rate where people have to see a patient every 15 minutes to make ends meet, it's impossible. I always say at 15 minutes, I'm barely at hello. I mean, I'm like, how, how school, how are you? And, but, but everything I'm talking about, I'm, I'm observing, I'm learning. How's their relationship with their parent? How is school going? Oh, the mom says it's terrible. And the kid said, it's fine. What's that all about? It's all a part of the visit, but also it's a part of being a human being. I didn't go into, you know, be a pediatrician. So I could like get people in and out of my office as quickly as possible and not have any relationship with them. I don't know what that is, but it's not medical care or it's not the kind of care that I want to be a part of, or I'm willing to be a part of, but, but I think I would, you know, I would say like, let's really change up the system. Let's not tweak this or that's what, you know, that's, what's been happening with all of the accountable care organizations, right? There's like a tweak and another tweak. And obviously there are, you know, millions of lives that we're talking about and, you know, billions of dollars. And so it's not that easy to just like up, have a huge upheaval. But sometimes that's what I think you need, like, like to say, like, actually, when you just kind of restart, things look different. And when you start from the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's hard to do, but that's what I wish that they, everyone would do. Thank you so much for taking time to talk with me today about the practice, the genius idea that you had, how, how you came to it and what you're hoping to do next. Thank you, Robin, for spending time with me. Thank you. And thanks for all you're doing around the city and all of your incredible work and and your support of us. We didn't get to this, but you were my very, very first donor. And you actually gave me the inspiration to say like, this could happen. I, yeah, I feel like, I feel like maybe our donation just came in first because you, you were out and about, you had a very good idea. It was easy. It was easy to see where it was going to go. I can't imagine a more perfect person to instigate all of this. And so we are, we'll always be supportive of you and your work. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Dr. Robin Reisberg. Robin's work at Boston Community Pediatrics represents a new approach to caring for our most vulnerable neighbors. And the model she has built has the potential to help reshape our healthcare system. I hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. Have a great day.